Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, February the 15th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. I know a lot of our listeners were also subscribers to Talking Politics, the podcast hosted by Cambridge professor David Runciman, which ran for six years before folding its tent just under 12 months ago. Talking Politics featured some of the most insightful discussion of the turbulent political events that followed the Brexit referendum and the election of Donald Trump, as well as framing all of those events through the perspective of the long history of political and philosophical thought, everybody from Thomas Hobbes to Francis Fukuyama. David Runciman's own work considers the nature of the relationship between governments and the societies that they govern, the changing pressures on democracies, and the challenges posed by technological, demographic, and climate change. Last week, he was in University College Cork to give this year's Philip Monaghan lecture on the subject of the Leviathan living in the age of states, corporations, and AI. We met to discuss this and several other subjects, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. David, you're very welcome back to the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. We'll get to what's brought you to Cork in a little while, I hope. But first, can I ask you something? Because I know that there's quite an overlap between the people who listen to our podcast and the people who used to listen to talking politics. I hope you won't take this wrong, but I was talking to the journalist Helen Lewis, who did a series about the new gurus for BBC Sounds a few weeks ago. And she had some very interesting observations about the way the way ideas are disseminated, I suppose, on, on the internet these days and how public intellectuals all have podcasts. And you're a public intellectual who had a very popular podcast and then dispensed with it. And I wonder, do you feel a sense of loss or of liberation since you ended talking politics? A bit of both. Um, I mean, the liberation is from, I, I, I don't know how you feel about this, it's from the keeping up with the week-to-week stuff. I mean, that's the thing that, we did it for six years and uh, it was pretty tumultuous six years in politics. You know, when we started, it, it was pre-Brexit, pre-Trump. And by the time we ended, God knows what it was. Um, so there was, you know, that, there's that sense of the every week uh, keeping up is never a problem finding things to talk about. You know, people sometimes feel you've got a weekly podcast. How do you how do you find things to talk about? That's never the problem. The problem is almost not being overwhelmed as from one week to the next. Particularly, I have to say, during 2019, and then after that, during the pandemic, where the world seemed to be moving too quickly to kind of hang on to its coattails. Uh, so I feel liberated from having to hang on to its coattails. Uh, but I miss doing a podcast, and I may I may well be doing another one soon. Oh, great. That's good to hear. I mean, personally, I, I have to say, I found that actually some of the best podcasts are when you aren't in the blizzard of the moment of yeah. some big political event. That, that the ones that work better are when you've had a chance for reflection or you go down a, a side alley somewhere. And that was always the goal. So our goal was always to take a step back. Um, and often we managed to do that, even in the heat of Brexit. When Brexit seemed like there was a there was a point in, I, I can't remember when now, but sort of early 2019, where it seemed like we'd gone down a rabbit hole politically as a country, the UK, and we were never coming out of it. And even then, I think we managed to take a step back and see the funny side, among other things. Uh, it, it got harder, actually, during the pandemic. During the pandemic, that 
that ability to just sort of reflect a bit without feeling it was getting on top of you, that got harder, which was part of the reason why it got harder to do it week after week. But yeah, absolutely. I think part of the appeal of podcasting as opposed to, say, radio um, is it doesn't have to be, it's an immediate form of broadcasting and people feel part of the conversation, but it doesn't have to be immediately about the thing that happened 20 minutes ago. Having said all that, there have been times over the last 12 months, for example, during the initial stages of the invasion of Ukraine, when I would have loved to hear you talking with Helen Thompson about the politics of of energy in particular uh, at that point, and then the kind of the the almost comic Billy Bunter-esque eviction of of Boris Johnson from 10 Downing Street, and then the extraordinary not out of a thousand days, but uh, 40, Liz, Liz of days, 40 days or whatever it was, events of, of last autumn, when I really would have welcomed your insight. And there must have been times over the course of all that where you thought, oh, I wish we were doing a podcast on this. Uh, yeah, there were. And actually, we were still going uh, just as the invasion of Ukraine happened. And that's when we stopped. I mean, we almost by chance, we'd agreed to stop in early March. And, and I did talk to Helen about it on the podcast. It was the last podcast that we did. But I think both of us felt that then, as it were, following that story in real time, even taking a step back, it's a real challenge. Um, Boris Johnson, he's always with us. The Liz Trust bit is the bit I would have liked to have been (laughs) talking about. I found the the Liz Trust 42 days um, harrowing because it felt like one of those car crashes you could see. And this is not just with hindsight. I mean, people who, who know me will tell you that I was shrieking about it well before it happened. It was one of those car crashes you could see coming from a long, long way off. And those are quite fun if you're not actually in the crash. I mean, you can just see it coming. And and then it was satisfyingly resolved very quickly. Now, there was a point where you thought this is going to drag on and on, and actually it's going to turn into another of those rabbit hole nightmares. But the Tory party, if nothing else, you've got to give it credit for its main strength. I mean, it's, it's, it's number one political attribute, which is its utter ruthlessness. Um, not many, you know, it's shortest lived premiership of any major leader in any major country anywhere in the world. Only the British Conservative Party does that. I mean, on one it, level, it had obviously the characteristics indeed of, of, of a sitcom, of one episode of a sitcom, actually. Yeah. But on another, I, I wonder what was going on. We had uh, somebody who you know you know well, Gary Gerstle, on with us talking about his book, The, the Decline and Fall of Neoliberalism. And in a way, I, I wonder whether that brief moment of trustism was the last spasm of the corpse or the last moment in the horror film when it rises up one last time with its knife or what you make of it from the from the broader political perspective. Yeah, I mean, I think it has that that double quality in that for some people, it was like the sort of absurdist version of it. So it exposed the whole thing, the whole charade. You give it to someone who seems sincerely to believe in all this stuff so completely that she will expose its utter hollowness. Um, and there was a bit of that. But I think then for many people, what she sort of illustrates is you've got to be careful if you're going to do this kind of politics, you can go so far and no further. And certainly the British Conservative Party hasn't concluded from the, the trust episode that it needs to rethink what it's about and what it does at all. It's concluded that it needs to revert to the pragmatic version and that what she was was the kind of bonkers ideological version. Um and something similar might have happened if Jeremy Corbyn had... You know, there is a, a version of history where Jeremy Corbyn becomes prime minister. The Labour Party wouldn't have got rid of him, so it wouldn't have been 40 days, it would have been four years probably. But nonetheless, he tests to destruction, possibly with the market, some of the ideas that he stands for. 
And some people would, would conclude from that that it had exposed you know, the holiness of the ideas. And other people would conclude, well, if only it wasn't Corbyn, but someone a bit shrewder and a bit less likely to kind of go off the deep end. That's the way we need to do it. And I think modern British conservatism is still in that second mode rather than the first. There are probably one or two people who are rethinking it, but I think most of them have got to wait until Sunak gets crushed at the next general election and then the rethink comes. I don't think it happens while you're still in power, is my guess. Although Sunak, you know, is in some ways is quite a boring figure. One of the things I find myself, you know, finding now, and, and I found this um, a couple of years ago when, you know, the fever broke, at least to some extent, in the United States, and they elected a sort of an, an elderly establishment figure to run the place for a while, as opposed to the, the mad chaos which happened previously. There was part of me, which was obviously quite relieved by that, and there was another part which was slightly disappointed. It became, you know, the part of it which is part of the entertainment industry went away. And I feel a little bit the same with British politics. Um, uh, but that's probably a good sign. Yeah, it's definitely less entertaining than it has been. Um, and it's not just Sunak. It is Sunak and Keir Starmer, uh, the combination of the two of them. So, for instance, yesterday, Prime Minister's Question Time, which traditionally in British politics is knockabout, and when Johnson did it, it was real knockabout stuff. Yesterday was two sort of sober-minded you know, middle management types agreeing with each other about Ukraine. It felt, you know, It felt very stayed um, and sensible and so there are things to miss um i i don't think given the way that politics works now it can last for that long um there is real mutterings of discontent in the conservative party with sunak partly because the thought is that he is too dull for this this kind of politics um he's got to have something on top of just being a sort of safe pair of hands and as we get near a general election, and as it looks more and more likely that the Conservatives will lose, you know, some of the, the 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 more showy parts of, of British politics will come back to the fore. I think the remarkable thing is that Keir Starmer has managed to make the Labour Party so boring. I mean, that's a real achievement, because the Labour Party is also still full of people who would like politics to be a lot wilder. And they, you know, they had their time, but they haven't gone away. It's not like he's purged the party of all the people who think that Jeremy Corbyn is the messiah but he's managed properly to shut it down so that no one in Labour ever says anything interesting ever. Um, and that probably will be enough to win him the next election. And then we'll see. And, you know, and then when you're in power, then all the questions start again. Because he does get criticised a lot for, um, for, for that strategy. And, you know, in a way, both, you know, Corbynism and what's happened with, with Brexit and the, and the Tory party can both be read as revolts against, you know, technocratic elites boring technocratic elites and uh, a desire for something different, whatever the hell that might be. I remember somebody, a Welsh person, talking to me about friends of his in one of the you know, economically depressed valleys, just saying, we've just got to break something. Uh, we just haven't had it anymore. And that impulse then, you know, played out through the through the referendum and the succeeding elections. It's hard to believe that that impulse has just gone away entirely so quickly. No, and I don't think it has. And nothing about politics around the world suggests that somehow you could just put all that back in the bottle by having a couple of technocratic types in charge for a year or two. I mean, you know, the idea that you know, populism, the tide of populism may have peaked and maybe you know, it, it may be in retreat, but all of the forces that led to it don't just go away because of a few electoral reverses. Um, I, you know, I completely agree that there is more to come. I also think probably... You know, we're, we're still in a kind of phony war phase, not just in British politics, but particularly in British politics. I think some of the questions about Brexit, which are just on hold at the moment. I mean, the most remarkable thing about Keir Starmer is that 
He was, you know, a vocal campaigner for Remain. He then, within the British Labour Party under Corbyn, did his damnedest to stop Brexit from happening. You know, he, he was he was a leader of the the people who were trying to sort of engineer by the back door a second referendum and so on. He's now leader of the Labour Party. There is a growing consensus in British politics across the board that Brexit was a very bad idea. And he doesn't dare talk about it. You know, he's the guy, if anyone could say I told you so, he could say I told you so. He won't even discuss it. He won't let anyone even mention it for fear of unleashing forces that he can't control. You can't keep that up forever. And when he's prime minister, he's going to have to take some tough choices about that. And then a lot of this will come back. But for now, we're in a sort of probably 18 months in British politics, at least, unless something really bad happens globally, of a kind of treading water phase. But it's not then going to be the case that managerial politics rules for the next 10 years. Keir Starmer is going to face some really tough choices. But when he gets there, he has to get there first, doesn't he? And it seems to me that what you've just described in his position on Brexit is a complete recognition, even given that the polls now show a you know a, a comfortable Labour victory, that there are large swathes of England in particular that he needs to recapture. That project would be in jeopardy if he started making noises about even being a softer Brexit, much less, God knows, some kind of return to Europe. Yeah, so I don't know about that. Um I'm sure that's his thinking and and parties that have been in opposition for more than a decade are terrified of their own shadow. But the polling, Labour is 25 points ahead in the red wall seats. Um, So he could lose a few, but I don't think he would lose many if he at least started talking about it. And the difference is that the Conservatives have trashed their brand. So the thing that has changed British politics, but again, no one really wants to talk about this, is that I think Boris Johnson might well have given Starmer a real run for his money. Boris Johnson is a winner. Yeah, the, all the party stuff would have been behind him. Who knows, right? Anything was possible. And he was he was still hanging on in the polls. Six weeks of Liz Truss and a five-point lead for Labour became a 30-point lead. And that, you know, in marketing terms, that's trashing the brand. That's not sort of people rethinking their political positions and wondering if maybe they should listen to other arguments. It's just them looking at a bunch of idiots and thinking, no. We're done with this lot. And I think in those circumstances, as a leader of the opposition, you probably can afford to be a bit bolder. I, I totally get why the Labour Party is terrified. And, and he's he is listening to the Blairites who are still, you know, the ones who have that sort of innate caution in the way that Blair did before he won his landslide. But the Conservative brand, I think, for now, is done. And then the other, seems to me, huge difference is that he has successfully managed to keep the Corbynites inside the tent. So Starmer would be in trouble, I think, more if part of the Labour Party had broken away and that there was a sort of Corbyn grouping who were going to stand against boring managerial Labour candidates. Not happening. Labour is completely united. Where Labour stands, there won't be a rival. The only rival will be the Green Party. But the Tories are still having snapping at their heels, the, whatever the version that Nigel Farage is now in British politics. I think it's called Reform, and it's not him. But there is a party to the right of the Conservatives, which has announced that it will stand in every Conservative seat. And it only has to pick up 5% of the vote, and the Conservatives can't win. And then on top of that, you know, the SNP are in trouble in Scotland, and it looks like, unless transgender issues turn out to be the issue that you know, decide British politics. We probably shouldn't talk about that. Um, Labour will be the beneficiaries. So I get why Starmer is cautious. I think he's going to win the next election, whatever happens. I mean, we look at this from the perspective of Ireland, obviously, so, to some extent from a position of self-interest, and we're interested in resolving this 
long-running dispute over the Northern Ireland Protocol, and there seems to be more optimism about around the prospect of that now. But more broadly, we probably, you know, looking with some hope towards a, a Starmer government, perhaps reconsidering not necessarily a return to the EU, but you know, looking again at the at the single market, uh, the customs union, and issues like that. Um, do you see a kind of a slow easing of those kind of issues in British politics over the next while? Or does that awaken the beast again? I think a lot depends on what sort of government he's able to form. Um, So I think he'll be the next prime minister. You can't be sure because of the way British politics works that he'll have a majority in parliament. And in a way, parties that do have a majority aren't necessarily freer to act because then they're at the mercy. You know, a majority of 10 means 12 people in your party can sort of hold you to ransom. So I think a lot depends. I'm sure his instincts are all that way. Uh, And the growing consensus in British politics is that Brexit has been an economic, um, I want to think of another word than disaster, but, you know, backward step. Um, And that Britain is... Cock up. (laughs) Yeah, Britain is doing worse, not only than it would have been doing under other circumstances, Mm. but it's doing worse than all of its equivalents. Other nations with similar economies, either of similar size or that operate in a similar way. And, you know, the question for British politics is who's going to get the British economy back on track. And for the Labour Party in particular, since it's not going to be able to spend that much more, the constraints are still there. It's hard to see an answer to that question. It doesn't go down a road of closer alignment with European markets. I don't think Starmer's going to, at any point in his premiership, going to talk about rejoining the European Union, not least because it would take too much time and political capital. But, and how he describes the language of realignment, I don't know, because he'll want to make it sound like, you know, it's a pragmatic economic choice. But it's hard to see what Labour does that doesn't involve that route, because the options are limited. If you are a Labour government that wants to pay nurses more, that wants to invest more in schools and hospitals, that wants to reconstruct post-austerity public infrastructure in Britain, and the money isn't really there, you need economic growth. And there isn't a miracle cure for that. But were we still in the European Union, Britain would be a a bigger economy. So join the dots. You're coming to Cork to uh, give a a speech of which I know nothing except the title, which is The Leviathan. And from what I know of of your work, uh, I'm presuming that Thomas Hobbes is involved um, there somewhere and perhaps some consideration of the nature of the state. Am I right or am I wrong? Yeah, so it's it's actually not a word that exists. So I've made it up as I discovered when I Googled it. And it turns out there are no references to it on Google apart from the lecture I'm giving tonight. Yeah, I, I found that too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, which is slightly weird. So it means it's a made up topic. Um, it's It's a somewhat academic topic, but I think I also hope a sort of topic of general interest it comes out of a book that I've just written and it's coming out later this year which is about the relationship between states corporations and artificial intelligence but the argument is about there's a word that gets bandied around a lot in academic circles and I think outside now as well which is the Anthropocene which is the idea we're living in this age where humanity has kind of stamped its selfishness all over the planet and human beings are going to have to change before we you know burn the whole thing up and my argument in a sentence in this lecture is that's the wrong name for it. Um, it's not that we're not responsible. We are responsible. But it's through our states and corporations that this happens. It's not that we have to change, but we have to change them. We built these kind of monsters. And my argument in my book is that they're more like robots than they are like us. 
And that's where it goes back to Hobbes. Hobbes says of the Leviathan in 1651, he said, it's an automaton, it's a robot. We build this giant robot to kind of take decisions for us to keep us safe. So we built these robots, states and corporations. They have kept us safe on the whole. They've made us richer and more prosperous. They've allowed us to live longer. They've done everything we asked of them, but they're not human. And we've kind of lost control of them. You know, they If the world ends, you and I aren't going to have ended it. It will be our states and corporations. They are ours. We built them. We run them. We're responsible for them. We have to re-engineer them. So the argument of my lecture is, if you call it the Anthropocene, it makes it sound like human beings have to change. But we're not going to change. We're human. Humans don't change, not in, quick enough. Actually, we should name it after the, the things that are running the world, and we should change them. So we need to re-engineer our states, re-engineer our corporations, stop them stop corporations being profit maximization machines, stop states from being so responsive to certain kinds of short-term stimuli. If you think of them as robots and they were chewing up the planet, we wouldn't think, oh, we'd better change or the robots will eat us. We would think we'd better change the robots. That's the argument, if that makes any but, sense at all. No, no, it makes lots of sense. And then it comes back to you know, the nub of, of, of what you write about. Changing the robots is about politics. That's a sort of a definition of politics, in a way. It's about politics, but weirdly, part of the argument is that the kind of thing that people think of as interesting politics, like elections, what we've just been talking about, who's in, who's out, you know, who's in charge, what, what, what do they think, what do they want? That's our focus. But if you think about it as a kind of engineering challenge, we have to sort of rewire these things. Um, so, for instance, I think we spend far much too much time in politics thinking if we could just get better people running the show, they would save us. But actually, these machines are out of control. It's very hard for even the best-intentioned people to regain control of the state, all states, the Irish state, the British state, the American state. These things have kind of a huge internal wiring legacy that makes them very, very hard to manage. Same with big corporations. You know, good people go to work for big corporations and they end up taking on the character of the corporation. The character, the corporation doesn't take on their character. And so we have to do the boring stuff. So if you're going to rewire the state, you don't think, oh, if only that person would win the next election. You change the rules of the game. You've got a, it's constitutional reform. It, it's voting reform. It's it's changing the rules around how corporations work. It's legal questions. It's the kind of wonkish stuff, which to most people, if you say the planet is burning, they would say we haven't got time for that. We need a messiah. Whereas I say you can have a hundred messiahs. The states and corporations of this world are still going to chew up the planet because they're basically not human you actually have to spend your time rewiring them so it doesn't even need a messiah to save you because they work better. So the boring stuff is actually the important stuff. That's the theme. Isn't the scale of that challenge, you know, the, the size of the robot, the complexity of the mechanisms, just a, of, of a scale and uh, an intricacy that Hobbes could never have imagined, the kind of the services and the way it exerts power in so many complex ways and the way it's intertwined with technology and society make that so daunting that some people might just, you know, throw up their hands. I mean, just to bring it from the abstract to the concrete a little way, in both your your country and 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 this one, where we kind of face these horrendous challenges in the provision of healthcare to an aging population. And we seem incapable of rethinking that in a way that would affect meaningful change. Uh, Thomas Piketty, I think it was, suggested that that the moments of real of real social and democratic change that have happened over the last 100 years or more have always arisen because of war, basically, or serious conflict 
which is a bit of a bleak prospect if that's the only thing that really changes things. Yeah, so it is, and that is part of the challenge because you can't wish for a war to improve your healthcare system because especially in the 21st century, wars have a habit of you know, ending up worse than anything you could have imagined. So that's not going to be the answer. And it is far more complex. And, and the burden of responsibility that these, these mechanisms carry, you know, the extraordinary complexity and range of their responsibilities, primarily but not exclusively their responsibilities for welfare and education, is such. But, but there is still, it seems to me, a huge mismatch between politics seen as that and the way we talk about solutions. So we talk about solutions in terms of electoral you know, policy platforms and political personalities and this party and that party and this one and that one do this rather than do that but just to take again a concrete example it sounds this is the sort of thing that sounds so academic and wonkish that people switch off but at the most basic level our politics revolves around elections and elections are very important for democracy because you can kick the bastards out but they're terrible ways of signaling what people really care about because all the evidence is no one wants to end the world no one wants to destroy the planet. If you talk to people, they want to abolish nuclear weapons. If you talk to people, they want a much more creative and imaginative set of economic solutions to climate change. If you talk to people, they're willing to think about trade-offs and sacrifices, but not when they vote. I mean, why would you? When you vote, you're being asked to choose between this person and that person. So you need a politics that talks to people differently. So the academic word for this is deliberation, deliberative democracy, citizens' assemblies. And when you say that, people want to shoot themselves because they think it sounds like the most boring thing in the world. But if you don't rewire the way the thing works, it's, if you think about it like a sort of information machine that produces decisions, what matters is what does it hear? What's the input it gets? A robot that only heard a certain narrow domain of information would, would end up making stupid decisions. So you need to broaden the range of inputs. And we just don't do that. We spend very, very little time thinking about how the machinery of state could hear from citizens in different ways. Because it just doesn't seem like we have the time for that when we should be you know, dealing with the next Twitter crisis. And if we don't do that, the planet's going to burn. I mean, as, as, you, as you know, we have some experience of deliberative um, assemblies and constitutional conventions and, and the likes here. And we've had... You know, a range of people are, are regular guests in this podcast, actually, who've been involved in setting them up and running them and that kind of thing. And given my argument, my role here is partly be, to be devil's advocate. I, I should put forward the point of view which has been expressed by some people about them, which is to kind of to channel Michael Gove, that they tend to be uh, directed and manipulated by experts towards certain predetermined ends. That's not necessarily what I believe myself, but that is that is the criticism, that if 100 people are taken at random, they're put in a room and they're, uh, they're spoken at by, you know, 50 academics and experts in various fields over a while, they tend to come to a certain certain conclusion. Have you looked at the Irish example in any way as, you know, for, for pros and cons and those kind of arguments? You know, in the Irish case, most famously, it was it, it was it was part of setting up a constitutional referendum, and it's that combination of both more popular involvement in, in a referendum and more deliberation. I think I think even potentially Michael Gove might agree that the Brexit referendum would have gone better if there'd been a bit more deliberation involved too. That if people had had a chance to talk about what Brexit, what different possible Brexit there might have been. None of these things are a panacea, right? Citizens' assemblies are not going to solve our problems. There was a point in the Brexit impasse where various Labour MPs said, right, the answer to this is going to be a citizens' assembly that's going to just tell us what to do. 
And of course, that Citizens' Assembly, whatever it had come up with, would have then fed back that answer into a British parliament that couldn't agree even on you know what time of day it was. So it, none of this is a panacea. And, and I'm not one of those people who thinks you know, representative democracy needs to be replaced with this more wonkish version. It's an illustration of a wider argument, which is we hear a pretty narrow band of public opinion in our democratic politics. And it, you know, when people complain, it's kind of short-termist and responsive. It's not because people are selfish, short-termist, responsive types, neither politicians nor the public. I mean, everyone's responding to the signals they get. We need a much, much broader range of signals. We need to set this machinery up so that it's able to hear the range of what people think and care about in a way that just doesn't actually happen at the moment, I think. Because if you don't, what happens is that the machine just carries on functioning in the way it always has. It's you know, states, and and it's important, this is corporations too, which are even narrower in their remit and the information they hear. You know, They respond overwhelmingly to signals from markets, including their own share price. And you know, profit maximization machines just respond to a very narrow set of figures. If you can broaden that, this this machinery has a chance of working much better. Otherwise, essentially, we're kind of you know, feeding off each other's signals in a way that is, for all of us, I think, endlessly frustrating. And while all of this happens, while we keep changing who runs these states, who runs these corporations, the direction of travel of the Anthropocene, or as I want to call it, the Leviathan, the age of states and corporations, continues in one direction. You know, it's it's not like over the last 30 or 40 years, the underlying data related to what we are doing to the environment has shifted much, a bit. You know, responding to market signals, corporations are doing some innovative things around renewable technologies and so on. But on the whole, we're still heading for something bad. And then we think, let's elect a new person and they'll change. You know, when Obama got elected and he said, you know, the, the sea levels will start to fall thanks to my election. And people applauded rather than you know, laughing. Laughed, which is what they should have, yeah, in retrospect. So is climate change the equivalent of Piketty's war, then, as an agent of change? So unfortunately, it's not. So we've had sort of two examples. So, so a lot of people thought COVID was a kind of wartime experience. States took on wartime powers. People changed their behaviour radically. But it's not a war because as it were, once it's passed, we reverted quite quickly to normal. And the sacrifices that were asked of us were not on that scale. And also wars are great equalisers and COVID actually increased inequality, I think. So COVID isn't the thing. And then climate is a slow burn issue by definition, and wars aren't. So, so the way in which wars trigger this kind of change is that they produce a moment where there's a shift in how people see politics and the shift happens to them at the same time. Elites and publics different political parties, um, the rich and the poor, the educated people with less education, they have a kind of collective experience in war because, as it were, they're facing a similar threat. Um, war is a great equaliser, although some people get very rich at the end of it. Climate mm. climate is not that. So climate change is not an equaliser. Um, we, we experience it differently, different parts of the world, different places. People, Everyone's going to have, in a sense, a different experience of it. The enemy is not in plain view. The time horizons are very unclear. It's fed into a politics of suspicion of expertise. None of these things are true of war. They weren't true in COVID. During COVID, people listened to what the experts were saying. On the whole, not everyone, but on the whole. I mean, the British public, to a remarkable extent, did. Um, and then when it was over, it was over. So war seems to be a special case, unfortunately. And 
the crises that we face are not those kinds of equalizers. So we don't hear people in a different way. I'm Where does that leave? To be, to be pessimistic. Well, that's, a, that's, that's fine. Where does that leave? I mean, I take your point about us focusing, I, I agree, too much on the, you know, the, the cycle of elections and various other things, the kind of the, what's called the horse race element of, of politics, I, I suppose. But where does it leave the kind of the broader political landscape, which most of us tend to paint as being the reality of what politics is about, that kind of classic political axis where there's a left to right on economic issues and there's an up and down on on social and cultural issues. And so much of what we deem to be politics here in Ireland, in the United Kingdom, in the United States and many other parts of the world are along those axes. Are they distractions? Um, no, I mean, I think they're, they're, they're real and in some ways they're getting more intractable, although they're they're shifting in some ways. So I've, I've, I, along with a lot of other people, have written quite a lot about, and Piketty certainly has too, about education being the, the new big divider. And in a sense, the parties of the centre-left, this is true of the Democrats, true of the Labour Party in Britain, um, have become the parties of graduates, essentially, um, as it were, the educated classes. And the parties of what were the centre-right have tended to be Republicans in the US, Conservatives in Britain, parties of people who didn't go to university. That's a kind of new division and it seems real and you can't understand things like Brexit without it. Um, but yeah, there's there's a mismatch in many ways between these divisions and the political choices that were offered. You know, that is both true and it's not true that the Labour Party has called, renamed itself the Graduate Party and is explaining to everyone that's what it stands for. It's still it's still the Workers' Party. So there's, there's still that continuing uh, mismatch there. Same with age. You know, generational differences are hugely significant and ageing societies where older voters tend to decide elections. This is, this is the substance of politics and people who want to win elections have to assemble coalitions out of the, the alliances and the divisions that are there. But none of these divisions feel like they're driving, to me at any rate, feel like they're driving really sort of new imaginative ways of doing politics. It's, it's a question of how do we get them to fit into the old bottles? That's what we're trying to do. Because the thing that hasn't changed on the whole are the parties. So in, in, in France, the main parties have been destroyed and you've got sort of en marche and whatever the National Front is called now. But established parties are turning out to be remarkably durable and their machines too. The party machine is still operating. It's true in this country as well. Um, and... While so much is changing and so much about the way we construct our lives socially and how we communicate with each other and how we think about identity is shifting rapidly, we're still trying to squeeze it into those those old bottles. And part of, I think, the re-engineering of the state would be to try and break them apart too. I mean, I think an absolutely fundamental question of our politics is what comes after the political party? Because it's possible that the political party is a kind of analogue institution in a a world that needs something that is just more open to new ways of thinking and understanding. But it's impossible to imagine representative democracy without political parties. And these new movements that spring up like Macron's, they turn into parties very, very quickly because they have to play that mechanical game. Anyone who can answer the question, what replaces the political party as the organising institution of modern politics should get a Nobel Prize. Although it is the case that there are... Um to some, to, to some extent, maybe they haven't been replaced, but um, parties, the political landscape has been added to by by movements as well as by traditional political parties on on, on, on various social issues. And and one of the things I, I I wonder about is along the culture war axis of that of that axis of talk I was talking about 
there's another element in addition to the, the the power of the state, the power of the corporate bodies, and that is the kind of the area in which I suppose you and I work, um, which is what, what is broadly called the knowledge economy, the academic institutions, the media, um, education, big tech, probably to a large extent. And for the sort of the the conservative and and in some cases the far right critique of what's what ails us, um, the progressive control of those institutions is seen as being a very important factor. Um, do we downplay it? Those of us within it, um, I mean, probably we do, and and certainly uh, within these institutions, uh, the range of perspectives is not nearly as broad as their ideal version. You know, universities are places where. Um, I don't know how to put this as someone who works in one because it's such a precarious topic. But uh, you know, they're not, you know, they're not, they're not bubbles, but they're not far off. Um, mm. And there, is, there is a shrinking of horizons in some respects within these various worlds. Um, and there's a sort of sorting that's going on. Some of it is sort of structural and social. Uh, you know, people within these worlds tend to hang out with people within these worlds, not just online, but in real life. They tend to marry people from in these worlds. You'll partner up with people from in these worlds, and then have children who belong in these worlds. You know, there is a there is a sort of social stratification going on that's real. Um, and so we probably do those of us inside it downplay a bit how it looks from the outside. But again, it's hard to sort of then map it across our politics. Um, Parties can exploit it for sure, and some parties are very good at it, and some politicians are very good at it. Donald Trump was brilliant at it. Now, as Donald Trump said, you know, in one of his speeches, he said, "I love the less educated. You know, you're my people. Um, I'm with you." Here he was a graduate of Wharton Business School, um, and not nearly as dumb as he looks. Um, so you, it can be exploited in multiple ways. But as it were, a politics that really was open to the to the way in which these different social groupings do need to kind of interact with each other and um, exchange ideas with each other. We don't have that. I mean, we increasingly don't have that. Um, and, and so our politics is responding to a narrower and narrower set of signals, I think, on both sides, um, when what we need is a broader, more human set of signals, because it just does become more and more mechanical. I mean, it is more routinized all the time. And then there's the real danger that it then crosses over with this, the new smart AI technology and you get kind of machines feeding off machines. So in the lecture I'm giving today, it ends with the nightmare scenario, which is the way we try and improve the machinery of state as we hand it over to, you know... To chat GBT. GBT, because it's smarter than we are. And then what you end up with is a very, very efficient, completely inhuman politics. I mean, that's a way we could go unless we find a way of doing politics, you know, unless we humanise it, which doesn't just mean looking for the saints to rescue us. It means listening to the full range of human experience. And it is just the case that our democracies don't do that. And they don't do that because they're not wired to do that. It is a question of re-engineering them. Having used ChatGBT a bit, I can I can assure you that it is not the, the vision of a brilliant future. It's a vision of a medio mediocre future, at, actually. But maybe that's you know maybe that's what faces us with AI. Although you know? you know the people I know who in universities are terrified about how it's going to lead you know to <laughs> an epidemic of students handing in essays that aren't by then, and then they're reassured because they they set it a, a question and it writes a really hopeless answer. But apparently, what yeah. you then need to do is say to it, Chat. GPT, you do realise that was hopeless. It needs to be better in these ways. And can you do it like, you know, a quote here and a quote there? And a, can you make paragraph two clever by like inverting your argument on its head? And it can do that. 
three rounds of that and you've got a brilliant essay. Well, by definition, if it does that, it's better than most students, isn't it? Including me when I was a student, student too. You have to I know, know what questions is, to ask. Exactly. I know the clock is ticking on you a little bit, but just listening to you there, I, I, it just occurs to me, there was just something else I wanted wanted to ask you about, about particularly about that that divide, that narrowing of, of, of focus. There is a theory out there, which I'm sure you're familiar with, is that some of this has to do with something called elite over, over-provision, that we are educating so many people and we're educating them to a level where they have certain expectations and the expectations which society provides are, uh, are the expectations which society meets are not remotely sufficient to to what we're promising people. But what do you, I'm sure you're familiar with that. What do you make of that as an analysis of one of the things that's going on? Um, I mean, the, the, the terminology of it isn't great. I think elite over-provision makes it sound like the, you know these are sort of factories spewing out um, privileged people who are no good for anything. There's probably more going on than that. But certainly there is also a mismatch between the economies that we have and the kinds of early life educational opportunities and other opportunities that we're providing. Um, and, and again, our politics at the moment does not seem to be particularly good at closing that gap. And it's got to be possible in a world of chat, GPT and other things, that the gap's going to widen quite dramatically quite quickly that the range of jobs that are available to people with a good education um, shrinks quickly. At the moment, it's not the case, right? At the moment, historically low levels of unemployment, um, the jobs aren't running out at all, not least because more and more people are deciding in a world of elite over-provision that they've got better things to do with their lives if they can afford it than work. And also people are retiring earlier. You know, the, the life cycle is changing dramatically under those conditions. And humans are very adaptable creatures. So we're not robots. So if you do have a world of elite over-provision, the elites who aren't dumb will work out some ways of sort of adapting to that. But it is still possible, I think, that the, the mismatch will grow. You know, the next 10 years are likely to be... Uh, we're in this sort of phony period, not least because we're coming out of COVID and there's a sort of frozen war and in Ukraine and the world feels a bit stuck in, in place. But the next 10 years are going to be as dramatic, I'm sure, as the previous 10 years, not least because the political consequences of COVID, we've barely begun to see them. You don't, you don't go through an experience like that. It maybe takes five, 10 years to play itself out, but you know, there, there will be consequences. Things will shift. Uh, my guess is that some of these gaps are going to widen quite dramatically, quite quickly. And to revert to my theme, I don't think we're going to be well advised to just twiddle our thumbs waiting for the political genius to come along who can who can manage this new world using the old institutions. I think probably what we should start doing now is opening up the old institutions really radically. David Runciman, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. And that's it for today. This podcast is produced by Declan Conlon. It's engineered by JJ Vernon. We're going to be back with you very soon indeed. But until then, goodbye and thanks for listening.